1: Schools can take steps to increase student racial diversity, but sometimes putting policies into practice is more complicated than it should be. Hi, I'm Brett from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're bringing you a special preview chapter from Robert Kim's new audiobook, Elevating Equity and Justice, 10 U.S. Supreme Court Cases Every Teacher Should Know. Bob is a former civil rights attorney and is a leading expert in education law and policy. In this excerpt, Bob Reeves from the third chapter of his book, which details the case, Parents Involved in Community Schools v. Seattle School District No. 1, a 2007 case that highlights how some conscious racial integration plans could actually be a violation of the 14th Amendment. It also draws attention to the growing racial segregation among schools in the U.S. and the desperate need for creative solutions. Here now is Bob Kim.
0: Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle School District No. 1, 2007. Schools can take steps to increase student racial diversity, but need to be careful in how they do it. Most of us who didn't attend school during the civil rights era have at least studied Brown v. Board of Education, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court school desegregation case from 1954. Separate is not equal, the court declared, and so schools must racially integrate. The following year, Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus. The Jim Crow era was dying. The civil rights movement had sprung to the fore. Thanks to pro-desegregation governmental and judicial policies and enforcement, by the late 1980s, the segregation of black and white students in the South had reached a low point. But by then, a growing backlash against and rollback of pro-desegregation policies and protections had begun to take its toll. Today, all of the desegregation gains in the South achieved since 1967 have been wiped out and schools throughout the nation remain deeply segregated by race. And in recent decades, parents, several of them white, have filed lawsuits to contest school assignments that furthered racial diversity but, in their view, harmed their own children's education. Kathleen Brose A PTA member, volunteer music teacher, and mother of two was one of those parents. In 1999, she followed the city of Seattle's application process to enroll her daughter Elizabeth in high school, hoping that Elizabeth would end up at her first choice, Ballard High. Nestled on a 13-acre campus replete with state-of-the-arts facilities, including a genetics lab, a tournament-class gymnasium, an 8,200-square-foot library, and a TV production studio. But Elizabeth ended up at her fourth choice, Franklin High, which her mother described as, quote, a heavily black school with lower test scores, end quote. Kathleen attributed this result to Seattle's brand new school assignment system, which included a quote-unquote tiebreaker policy aimed at ensuring racial diversity in schools. She believed her daughter, who is white, had been discriminated against. And so, as president of a new organization called Parents Involved in Community Schools, she decided to fight this result in court. The case. Kathleen Brose was just one of several Seattle parents in the organization called Parents Involved in Community Schools who challenged the city's student assignment system in court. For example, another parent in Seattle sought to enroll her ninth-grade son, Andy, in Ballard High School. Andy was identified as having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and dyslexia, but had made good progress with hands-on instruction, and Ballard's biotechnology program held the most promise for his continued success. Andy was accepted into this selective program, but, because of the racial tiebreaker policy, was denied a spot there. It's important to note that Seattle's student assignment plan was not created in a vacuum. In fact, it followed decades of widespread racial segregation in schools, lawsuits brought by the NAACP, and a mandatory busing policy, which was abandoned in 1988, due in part to its unpopularity, cost, and negative effect on white enrollment in public schools. In 1998, Seattle adopted a new plan for assigning students to its 10 public high schools, The plan allowed incoming ninth graders to choose from among any of the district's high schools, ranking however many schools they wish in order of preference. If too many students listed the same school as their first choice, the district employed a tiebreaker to admit students who had a sibling currently enrolled in the chosen school. But the next tiebreaker in Seattle's school assignment system depended upon the racial composition of the particular school and the race of the individual student. If an oversubscribed school was not within 10 percentage points of the district's overall white-non-white racial balance, the district used a tiebreaker to select students whose race would serve to bring the school into balance. This was the system that did not assign Elizabeth and Andy to their first-choice schools. Meanwhile, all the way across the country in Louisville, Kentucky, a similar situation was unfolding. Meredith, a parent in Jefferson County, sought to enroll her son Joshua in a kindergarten only a mile from his new home, but it had no available space. So, the district assigned Joshua to another elementary school in his assigned cluster, Young Elementary School. That school was 10 miles from home, and so Meredith sought to transfer Joshua to another school in a different cluster, which happened to be much closer to home but the transfer was denied because it would have had an adverse effect on the racial diversity of young elementary. As in Washington State, there was a long history involving race and schooling in Kentucky. The Louisville School District within Jefferson County had been operating under a school desegregation consent decree since 1975. This meant that the district had been determined to be unlawfully segregated and had been placed under court supervision to desegregate. In this respect, it was no different from hundreds of other school districts around the nation in the decades immediately following Brown v. Board of Education. Decades of court-supervised actions, including multiple revisions of the student assignment plan, ensued. Then, in 1999, a group of parents sued to stop the use of race to assign students to magnet schools within the district. A federal court judge agreed, deeming that practice unconstitutional and dissolving the desegregation order because, in the court's opinion, the school board had exercised quote unquote good faith compliance with the order. After the decree was dissolved in 2000, the Louisville school district followed a voluntary desegregation plan in which all non-magnet public schools were to maintain a racial composition that was at least 15%, but no more than 50% Black. Students could pick a preference for a school within their assigned cluster, but if the student composition within their chosen school was at the extremes of the racial guidelines, a student whose race would contribute to racial imbalance would not be assigned to that school. This was the system that denied Joshua his preferred choice of school. His mother sued on his behalf. The Kentucky case was eventually combined with the Seattle case to form what would become the Parents-Involved case before the U.S. Supreme Court. On June 28, 2007, in a 5-4 vote, Chief Justice Roberts held that the two school districts' student assignment plans violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and that the racial classifications employed by the districts were not, quote, narrowly tailored to the goal of achieving racial diversity, end quote, but rather, quote, directed only to racial balance, pure and simple, an objective this court has repeatedly condemned as illegitimate, end quote. The decision. In striking down the Seattle and Jefferson County student assignment plans, The court appeared troubled by the fact that race figured so prominently in how students in these districts were assigned to particular schools. This, according to the court, was in contrast to prior affirmative action cases in the higher education context, in which an individual student's race was but one factor among many in the admissions process. The court didn't like the way in which the districts defined racial diversity in binary fashion, viewing race exclusively as white, non-white, or black other, which seemingly discounted the presence of Asian American, Native American, or Latinx students. The court also said that the student assignment plans required the district to work backward to achieve a racial balance that was mechanically tied to racial demographics within the district rather than work forward to produce a level of diversity needed to create some purported educational benefit. In the end, the court boiled down the district's integration efforts to a system of racial balancing, thus dooming them. If any principle emerges from this ruling, it is that the government must treat people as individuals, not simply as components of a racial identity or group. While it's hard to dispute that principle, I find it highly irritating as a civil rights lawyer to realize that the court used the same legal doctrine used in Brown versus Board of Education to mandate desegregation, or equal protection, in order to invalidate desegregation efforts in parents involved, without taking into account the extensive desegregation efforts the Seattle and Jefferson County districts made to comply with Brown in the first place. What are we left with after this case? First and foremost, public schools that are not under some existing desegregation order must consider how to diversify racially without thinking about race first, using race-neutral alternatives. They have to show that such alternatives are unworkable before they can look into students' race specifically. But schools can also immediately pursue general policies that increase racial diversity as long as those policies don't involve looking at students' individual race. In fact, public schools became more racially integrated in the 30 years after Brown v. Board. In the next 30 years, however, after a series of U.S. Supreme Court rulings weakened court protection and oversight over desegregation, racial isolation in schools has increased. During the quarter century since 1988, the high point of desegregation in the U.S., the share of public schools whose student racial composition is 90% non-white or greater has more than tripled, rising from 5.7% to 18.6% of all public schools. Fast forward 65 years. Today, nearly one out of five public schools in the United States is highly segregated. Fewer and fewer school districts are under court supervision to desegregate. Schools exist in neighborhoods and regions increasingly divided by race and class, with few mandates or incentives for schools to matriculate students from areas outside of established school attendance zones. Indeed, there has been for some time the sense that schools cannot take extraordinary steps to diversify. With the era of interdistrict busing, long since passed, and a more rigid, quote-unquote, colorblind approach prevailing in education policy circles. Making History After learning that the Supreme Court had ruled in her favor, Kathleen Brose said, quote, I was relieved that we won. I felt vindicated that the seven years of work paid off. I'm glad for the city of Seattle and for the school district. Let's move beyond race and pay attention to the school districts and fix them, end quote. While her daughter Elizabeth had already graduated from high school, her younger daughter would attend Ballard High School, the school at which she had fought to get Elizabeth placed. Rose maintains that she was against discrimination, not racial diversity. But in examining the trend lines, it's hard not to draw a correlation between the parents-involved case and decreased racial diversity. Nearly six times as many schools in Seattle are classified as intensely segregated meaning that 90% or more of the students in those schools are non-white today than was the case in 1990. Sean Riley, an African-American who is both a product of and an educator in Seattle Public Schools, observes, quote, Racial balance is long gone in most Seattle schools. Schools that in my childhood were nearly half-white and non-white are nearly all minority again. Twenty of Seattle's schools consist of 90% or more students of color. Seattle isn't only resegregating, the district as a whole is becoming less diverse. End quote. Important concepts. There are two important concepts you need to know for this case. The first important concept is race neutral alternatives. The Seattle and Jefferson County School Districts had to show that they considered methods other than explicit racial classifications to achieve their stated goals. The court said that they failed to do this, pointing to Seattle's rejection of several alternative assignment plans that did not involve racial classifications, as well as Jefferson County's failure to present any evidence that it considered alternatives to racial classifications, for example, income-based classifications, or a non-race-based lottery system for assigning students to schools. The second important concept is general versus student-specific policies. One of the most critical points in parents involved was made by Justice Kennedy in a separate concurring opinion, which means that it wasn't part of the majority opinion but can still be influential to schools and to future cases in this area. Justice Kennedy said, quote If school authorities are concerned that the student body compositions of certain schools interfere with the objective of offering equal educational opportunity to all of their students, they are free to devise race-conscious measures to address the problem in a general way and without treating each student in different fashion solely on the basis of a systemic, individual typing by race." Justice Kennedy gave the following examples of how schools could diversify in a race-conscious manner without resorting to individual racial classification of students, such as selecting new school sites strategically to improve racial composition of the student body, drawing attendance zones with the racial demographics of neighborhoods in mind, allocating resources for special programs to attract a diverse student body, recruiting students and faculty in a racially-targeted fashion, and tracking enrollments, performance, and other statistics by race. All of those actions, if done in a way to invite or attract students of different races to particular schools, do not set hard racial quotas or classify and assign individual students according to their race, and would presumably survive legal challenges but parents involved may have scared school boards from even pursuing these perfectly legitimate strategies to foster racial integration. Implications for Educators and Schools For schools today, the options to influence racial diversity fall into three categories. Use race-conscious measures and justify them in a way described by the court in Parents Involved, use race-neutral alternatives, or do nothing. Which strategy your school district has pursued is largely up to your district board and its lawyers. Having said this, as key members of the school community, you may be interested in learning more about where your school stands on racial diversity and how racially diverse your school is relative to other schools in the district or the district at large. Find the racial composition and demographics of students at your school and in your district using the Civil Rights Data Collection which can be found at ocrdata.ed.gov. Learn more about notable school integration efforts in other cities, such as Hartford, Connecticut, Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, Berkeley, California, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and even Jefferson County, Kentucky, in the aftermath of the Parents Involved case. For starters, you might visit the Century Foundation website at tcf.org. Reflection We know from court desegregation orders from the civil rights era that the racial composition of schools is only one facet of the problem of unequal educational opportunity. The problem of segregative or discriminatory behavior within schools and districts, such as providing fewer educational opportunities and challenging curricular options for, and more severely disciplining, students who are racial minorities, has also been prevalent. Data suggest that this problem remains in many schools today. How can educators grapple with disparities in treatment that exist within schools and districts? And do they have any role or responsibility in addressing disparities in racial segregation or isolation between schools and districts? Getting proactive You have little or no control over the racial composition of your classroom. But that doesn't mean you can't learn more about how students get assigned to you or how to address racial inequities in how education is delivered within schools or classrooms. Learn how your district or school selects its students and whether the race of students plays any role in student assignments. This information may be available online or through your district office. Look closely at your school's honors and AP class enrollment data. You can find school-level data at the Civil Rights Data Collection site mentioned earlier in this chapter. At the classroom level, develop strategies and build supports for students who are underrepresented in those classes. Classroom and Community Voices This comes from Kim Parker, a high school English teacher in Massachusetts. Kim says, quote, I taught English at a high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts that tracks students. Most of the students in the lowest-level classes, called college prep, were people of color, while most of the students in honors and AP classes were white. I decided to detrack my sophomore class because I didn't want to be complicit in a system that denies opportunities to young people of color. I piloted a year-long class called honors prep. My goal was to move my college prep, or CP, students into the honors English track. I knew that if I could prepare them for success in advanced classes, their entire high school trajectory could change. We focused on developing reading skills, stamina, and fostering a love of literacy. These parallel skills were ones students could practice and master with their peers as they gained comfort asking questions, dispelling misunderstandings about what happens in honors classes, and developing any lagging academic skills. At the end of the first semester of the honors prep pilot, my CP students moved into my honors English class. Drawing on the work from the previous semester, I was able to build and deepen the work students did, spending more time on teaching complex texts, refining writing skills, and building students' self-confidence and resilience. I taught honors prep for two years and was able to move nearly 50 young people into the honors track my students demonstrated time and again that they were able to complete challenging work if they were taught and given time to become proficient in the necessary skills, End quote. Recent developments. The school-age population is more diverse than ever. In 2014, for the first time nationwide, more than 50% of the school-age population was non-white. And yet, as mentioned earlier, schools are resegregating at a fast rate. Today, for example, in the state of New York, nearly two out of three Black and Latinx students attend schools that are overwhelmingly 90% or above Black and Latinx. And admission policies to specialized New York City high schools that exacerbate segregation are a current flashpoint in local politics there. As mentioned earlier in the parents-involved case, Justice Kennedy articulated a strategy by which schools could pursue general, or in other words, non-individual-specific, policies to diversify without considering every student's race before assigning them to a school. School districts have done just this and survived legal challenges. For example, within the past decade, Lower Marion School District in Pennsylvania adopted a redistricting plan that, in the view of a federal appeals court, quote, passed constitutional muster because it did not select students based on racial classifications, did not use race to assign benefits or burdens in the school assignment process, did not apply the plan in a discriminatory manner, and did not have a racially discriminatory purpose, end quote. In 2018, the Trump administration rescinded a U.S. Department of Education policy on the voluntary use of race in student assignment. That Obama administration policy guidance released in 2012 articulated the department's interpretation of the parents-involved case in a way that suggested that school districts could pursue race-conscious student assignment strategies as long as they pursued race-neutral strategies first and or general, not student-specific diversity strategies. The rescission of the Obama era guidance signals the Trump administration's narrower interpretation of parents involved, and possibly its intent to investigate schools that take any measures to impact the racial composition of their schools, an ominous development for those wanting to achieve greater diversity in their schools.
1: We hope you have enjoyed this audiobook sample today, the audiobook for elevating equity and justice is available through most audiobook providers, and the book itself is available at Heinemann.com. You can learn more about both and hear a sample chapter from the audiobook at blog.heinemann.com. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette, and our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.